0: Good morning. Happy Sunday to you. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to thank you so much for being here. We are excited. We are jumping. I've just finished up a great series, Practical Atheist. I heard just some phenomenal things of God working. Uh, Thank you so much for allowing him to do that in you. And uh, just really cool things we've heard from that series. And today we start a new series. It's going to last just two weeks, uh, two short weeks. Just some housekeeping items. If you're with us in this Uh, This is our reading plan, our known journal. There are pages that take sermon notes, and that is on this morning, page 28. Uh, Page 28. If you don't have one of them, and then there's reading throughout the week, feel free to grab one. They're out in the lobby. Hang a right, and you'll see them there. Uh, Feel free to pick one up. Now, a little nervous this morning. I'll be honest. I'm going to do something I've never done before to open up a message. I don't think I've ever even done this period from the stage. I'm going to sing a song. I know. I'd laugh, too. Um, my wife was up here, some of you saw her, uh, Tanya, my beautiful wife, she's blessed with an incredible voice. I have not been blessed with that, and there's a reason I don't join in on this worship team. But I'm going to sing a song, and if you know it, if you know it, don't leave me hanging, jump in with me, okay? Ready? Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide, deep and wide. Deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Awesome. Now, you know what's really sad? The people that are listening online that catch this don't get to hear your wonderful voices joining in with me. All they hear is what's coming through this thing. Now, some of you who grew up in church know that song, and you also know that you there's a you do some things with that song, right? You then try and leave words out. So you leave the deep out, so it's hmm and wide, right? Ready? So let's try that one. Hmm and wide. Come on, do some motions. Hmm and wide, there's a fountain flowing, hmm and wide. Hmm and wide. Hmm, and wide there's a fountain flowing. Hmm, and wide. Right now, some of you know what you do next, right? We're gonna do that. You're like, he's not gonna really do that one, too. Yeah, we're gonna do the hmm, and hmm. Now, now, here's the deal. Now, this is when I was a kid, I used to always get this mixed around. I always be like, hmm, and no, no. And so, again, it's deep and wide. Ready? Hmm, and hmm. Hmm, and hmm, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, hmm, and hmm, there's a fountain flowing, hmm, and hmm, all right, give yourselves a round of applause. (laughs) Now, the thing I find interesting, what is that song about? I mean, seriously, as a kid, we used to sing a song all the time, this day I sing it, but I don't, the song really never, what is it about? I think, I think it's about God's love, but I I really, I'm not 100% sure. I think it's talking about God's love being deep and wide. Now, the one thing I do know, this isn't related to the song, but those words, deep and wide, uh, as much fun as it was to sing a song, those words over the years have caused some real tension in the church world. Uh, What I've found is if you pull out of our driveway and you drive up towards Bowmansville or head over towards Ephrata, uh, you'll pass different churches. And different churches do things different ways, not right or wrong, just different. And a lot of times the, the issue of deep versus wide is what separates many of these churches. And matter of fact, sometimes it gets downright nasty, oppositional, and really kind of these wars take place. On the one side, you have the church that says, we are deep. We're going to be all about teaching. In so words, if you come to our church, this church would say is we're going to take this book called the Bible and we are going to go deep. We're going to teach. Another church may say, run to the extreme of saying, hey, deep is important, but we'd rather just really be wide. In so words, we're going to do everything short of sin to reach as many people as we can and we're going to throw our doors wide open and we are going to be wide we might not be very deep, but that's okay with us because we're going to be reaching people far from God. Now, the thing I find interesting is I understand this tension. I full, in fact, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I engage with the reality of this tension. The struggle is I don't see the tension in Scripture ever. In fact, the verse that pops out of my mind is Matthew chapter 28. If you've been around church at all, if you've been around this church, you've heard this verse a lot. This is Jesus at the end of his life. He died. He rose again. Uh, He's now getting ready to go back into heaven to sit with the Father. And as he's getting ready to go back, he says, okay, guys, I've hung out with you, 12 of you, actually 11 at this point. I've hung out with you a long time, uh, three years. I've poured my life into you. We've lived together, walked together. I just want to one more time tell you what I'm all about, and I want you to be about that. So here it is. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I, was, I am fully God. I'm going to speak with all authority. Therefore, go and make, what's the word? Go and make disciples. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, I'm going to walk with you to do this. I'm going to be here with you because this is a tall order. Now, that's the mission that God left for Christians or the church. Now, as I look at this, I don't see deep and wide separated Matter of fact, I see a word, and it's discipleship. In other words, go out into all nations. In other words, Jesus saying, I'm a Jewish man. We have the Jewish scriptures, but the scriptures taught that the Jewish people are going to bless all people. So we're going to go out and reach people that are far from God, people that are different from you, people that don't know the Jewish scriptures, people that don't understand who I am. Go out and reach them introduce them to me, and then baptize them. In other words, bring them into the family. Embrace them as your own. Identify them as part of you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them, grow them up. I don't see the tension here. What I see is we are called to make disciples. Here's how I personally look at this. When I go out and interact with people that don't know Jesus, I don't even say that I am out evangelizing or ev- I'm not a part of evangelism. What I actually say here's what, is, I have friends that don't know Jesus and I'm walking with them to introduce them to Jesus. I've gone out, I'm trying to make disciples of all nations. I say what I am doing with them is I am discipling them. You say, well, no, wait a minute, they're not Christians what I am personally trying to do is get them to trust and value Jesus so that they'll take him at his word and then ultimately follow. Why this is important to me is because I don't split it apart, evangelism and then teach them. No, I say it's one process. So those friends that I have that I believe, I really believe one of them is too far from accepting Christ. But I believe what happens is then as we disciple them, they begin to trust and they naturally just continue with the process. It's what I do. I trust and I value Jesus. I'll keep going. So I don't see the words split apart. Now, I understand why in the church world we do this, but I believe we're called to make disciples. Now, the question that gets asked then is, well, how do you do it? This is where the real tension, I think, enters m- most churches. Because when you look at the, the Great Commission, there is, it's a mission. Those of you who are familiar with the leadership kind of jargon, mission is the goal, the kind of where we're headed Strategy is the how do you do it. There isn't a lot of strategy in Matthew chapter 28. There's go, that's a strategic word. That's something we need to do. There's baptize, that's a strategic word. And there's teach. So those things are important we're doing, but What is that all we have? How do we do this? This series, this week and next week, is going to unpack this answer to how. How Bethany, this church, and the leaders of this church view us how we're going to do this. How you are going to grow. How I am going to grow. How we want to do that. Now, this process started, um, it's been about a two-year process with our elders. Uh, It first hit our agenda. I went back and dug through and I kind of chuckled at this because it first landed on our agenda as an official business item. we were talking about it before that. On March 13th of 2013, now what's really kind of unique about that, March 13th is my anniversary. Um, So March 13th, 2013, we were married 14 years, I believe, that year. Is that right, sweetie? Did I do my math right? 14 years that year. Um, And so that night, instead of being out with my wonderful bride, I was sitting with a bunch of men in a room talking about how to make disciples. I know, committed to the church, right? (laughs) We went out that weekend. But anyway... We began to ask how. How do you do it? And not only how, but how do we do it so it's intentional? So in other words, when a person walks into this church, we assume that whether you're here and you're skeptical of who God is or whether you're here and you're all in, we assume that you've come and you're engaged because at some level you're seeking and you're trying to figure out who God is and you want to grow. So how do we do it? And we don't want to let it up to chance. We don't just want to leave it so you can pick and choose and, why I could try this. We want to really intentionally say, as a church, we are growing. So how do we do it? How do we make disciples? Now, a couple things, kind of uh, just some things to get us all on the same page is we're going to answer that question. Actually, I'm going to give you the questions that we ask to engage you in the same process we engage in. But the first thing I want to mention We are when we're talking about discipleship and discipleship process, we want to, as elders, we said, let's talk about steps, not programs. So we don't, and programs are important, and programs will happen, and we will do programs, but we don't want to ultimately make our discipleship process about programs. So here's the difference. Please, this is very important to me. Please hang with this. A program answers, asks the question: what is the need? What's the need? And then says, okay, now what can we do to meet the need? So let's start a program. Let's start an activity. Let's do an event so we can meet the need. Now, good stuff happens. Very good things happen as a result of that. A step, on the other hand, starts with the question, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the end goal? And then, now, let's put some pieces in place so that we can walk towards the end goal very, it's, it's very subtle, but it's a very different kind of reality of how to kind of go about discipleship. We've said we want it to be easy and obvious so that when a person walks into this church and they're brand new to Bethany and they're kind of new in their faith and they've grown, so what do I, so they say, I want to grow. We want it so it's, they're like, okay, I want to grow. This is what I do. It's easy and it's obvious. And the other heart is we want it to be as simple and aligned. So, in other words, we want all of our ministries to take place. So, for example, right now, meeting in this, in this building are some adult Sunday school classes or adult education classes. How does it fit in? How does it fit into the whole process? Where does it fit? What step is it? What is it ultimately doing to How does it fit in with our life groups that you see a table out in our foyer for this morning? How does that all work together? How about our our junior high ministry that meets on Wednesday night? How does that fit in? It's a program that happens, but how is it a step? What is it doing, and how does it fit into the whole? What is it accomplishing? How about our clubs or our children's ministry our men's ministry our women's ministry? What are they doing that fits in with the whole? Are they just these separate programs that are meeting needs? Let's bring it all together and say, let's work as a solid team, understand what each part fits, and it's a process that moves us. Now, with that said... That's going to be the real fun of it. Here's the question we ask on that March 13th, 2013 night. This was what was written in our um, agenda and our minutes that are captured from that meeting. We ask the elders, all sat around and said, what qualities?" So if we're thinking steps, let's answer the question, where do we want? What's a mature Christian look like? What do they reflect? What are they doing? What do they think? What do they process? We ask that question. So I'd ask you, engage with that question. Have you ever thought about that? If you had to boil mature Christianity down to a few things, what would it be? And we asked that question, we thought about that question, we kicked it around, and ultimately we came to an answer. I think most of you are going to agree with this answer. I think. Love God and love people. Now, we take that from Jesus when he says, hey, I'm going to boil the entire commandment down to two simple things. Love God, love people. So we believe then, as elders, we kind of kicked around and we came to the point that we said, well, a mature Christian, if I am mature and mature in I am going to love God and ultimately love people, or I'm going to at least be moving towards getting better and growing in those areas. So that's kind of the goal. That's where we want people to move. So we want to start saying, okay, now how do we get people to that end? How do we get me to that end? So we ask a second question. Well, how has it happened in your life? I'd ask you that question. What has God used to grow you towards loving himself and loving people? And we as elders sat down and we just answered that question personally. And I'd ask you to answer it. I mean, think about this. We'll just think through your story. Maybe the fun activity, sit down with your family and answer this question. Just listen to each other's stories. What specifically did God use in your life to begin to grow you and mature you? And what we found is there are a lot of different answers and different people kind of, depending on your personality, depending on your gifts, depending on how you're wired. We began to realize as we listened to seven of us around the table, seven of us had, a lot of times some of our answers would overlap. Sometimes they would be very different. Sometimes but we listened to them and kind of pulled them into a common area. And I think, we're gonna sh- I'm going to show you the list that we as a church are saying, hey, this is kind of how our elders grow. And then we went out and looked at kind of, what's been written about this and then we looked at other churches and we looked at other uh, things and said we began to realize hey this is kind of common to humanity not just us so here they are first one now this one could be headed all kinds of different things but basically it's personal private disciplines or we would use the word devotion now i'm not just talking about bible reading but though we are going to specifically talk about that uh, this could be, um, I, am going, I have a time set aside where I read this book for myself and, and begin to just meet God. It could be the personal disciplines of taking rest and Sabbath. It could be personal disciplines of prayer and fasting. But we listen as we listen to the elders talk, All at some level, most of us around the table, not all, said, that's really what God has used to grow me. So personal disciplines or devotions or quiet time is different words to that. The second one we listen to we is practical teaching. You know, I think this is common to most of you. I think this one would be on a lot of your list. So we think of that pastor or that message that we, or that place we go once a week to hear something. Or we think of that teacher that we listen to on the radio or the TV or catch on our podcast or on the internet. Or we think about that book that we engage with or the class that we've gone to. And we think about practical cognitive learning and teaching as kind of generally something that, that all think. The next one is relationships. Now this one I think you, almost all of you have this one on your list. You may not know it. But when you listen to the stories of how did you grow, you always hear, well, that guy, that girl, my boss. Back when I was in 12th grade, I had a teacher. I had a friend. I had a classmate. I, and, and we talk about the people that have engaged with us and walked with us or we've met or lived with or interacted with. So relationships at one level is, is important. Now, the next one is serving. I think, again, most of you say, yeah, that's I've grown through that. Uh, and, again, we had our teens stand up here on our stage two weeks ago, and they talked about they went out on a missions experience. Now, when you talk to them before they went, their goal in going was to serve, was to make a difference. But when you listen to them when they came back, what did their stories reflect? Yeah, they made a difference, but something happened inside of them as well. I love stories of, um, I interacted with someone recently who was talking about um, giving up their adult Sunday school class to teach young people. And they rest with that because I really want to get engaged with practical teaching. They said, but I've come to learn that actually serving, I've grown just as much, if not more, than when I was sitting and taking in week in and week out. So again, serving, you'll hear in many people's stories. is Now, the final one, and I'm going to put an X through this one, and here's why. You'll hear this in people's stories as their circumstances. When my child died, when my spouse died, when I was diagnosed with cancer, when, when I fe- miscarried, when I, and you go down the list of some circumstances that happen in life, and they are very real, and we find that many people, God uses those things to grow us and mature us in ways that we sometimes can even put words to. Now, so you say, well, Adam, why would you put a line through it? Here's why I put a line through it. As we looked at those five things, we asked the question, okay, which can we relatively do something about as a church? I think we can do something about personal devotions. I think we can do something about practical teaching. I think we can do something about encouraging relationships. I think we can do something about circumstances. Now, I tore my Achilles last year and had surgery. This process has done things inside of me that I cannot even begin to put words to. I have grown in ways and changed in ways that I, I'm still unpacking. Now, what we realize as a church we can't do is say, okay, hey, come with me. Come into the back room here. We're going to rip your leg off. Come on over here. We're going to break your arm. We're going to take, take something out in your life. We're going to burn your house down. We can't. Now, I guess we could do that and hope that God uses it to grow you. But the reality is we can't orchestrate that as a church. We can't, we, I, you know. So we said, well, as circumstances happen, let's make sure then that as how do you grow through your circumstances? Well, I grow by staying engaged with God. I grow by staying engaged with practical teaching. I grow by walking in those relationships who I can cry on shoulders and have encouragement and challenge and rebuke given to me. Uh, and even, even, I have grown through my circumstances even while I continue to serve through my hardship. And the final one is, is we do have counselors that we brought last year on site here to say let's then provide professional help to walk people through deep pain and emotional uh, turmoil. So again, they're kind of the, there's kind of the four things. And what, what I'd like to do this morning and next week is unpack them and say, okay, practically what's it going to look like at Bethany? Uh, so this morning, let's take, I just want to take the first two. And to do that, I um, want to talk this verse. This is, if people ask me, Adam, what's your life verse? I don't know if I have one, but this one is going to be in my top five. I mean, it is, it is up there. It says this, 2 Peter 1.3, it says, his, I'm going to need some help. When you get to that orange word, say it with me. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Is that a cool verse? Look at what it says. Take that in. His divine power. In, I mean, think about the power of God. He's given you something in that power. He's given you everything, not something, not part of the answer, not a little bit. He's given you everything we need for what? A godly life. He says, I didn't leave you as orphans to wander around and figure this out. I'm giving you everything you need. Now, where do we get everything? Through our, say it with me again, knowledge of Him. This comes back to what Pastor Chris so beautifully challenged me with last week and challenged all of us. How well do we know Him? Are you getting to know Him? And we would believe as a church that we get to know him, probably the most foundational basic way is to get to know him right here in this, on a regular, consistent basis. Studies and statistics say four times a week is what it takes to engage this on your own for it to truly make a difference. So four days sitting down on your own time, setting your alarm early or making sure you do it before you go to bed or do it in your break at work, four times sitting down, not just to check off the list, but to sit down and say, God, I'm coming to get to know you. I want to know you. Now, the cool thing is, one of the verses we talked about in, from our series over the summer in Colossians, I think re- reinforces this. Colossians 1.10, it says, Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. Now, most of us want and say, yes, it's what I want. All the while, you will, say with me together, grow as you learn to know God better and better. Couldn't be more direct. I am going to grow as I engage who God is and walk with him. Just walk and get to know him. That personal devotion time. Now, here's the deal. That personal devotion time, one of the things I want to stress, is a high privilege. Please hear this from the heart of my pastor's heart. Please hear this. We as a church have decided, and elders, have decided to put this reading plan together. Now, this reading plan has been a lot of hard, hard work. Uh, it's not been easy because we have to map out. we a matter of fact, we just finished this week mapping out our series with great detail and great study all the way until next May. You say, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, it was a lot of work. And we've been working our tails off trying to make that happen. One of the series that we are going to get to, I, mean, I, can't, I want to preach it this morning. I'm so excited about it. We're going to talk about, in January, where this book came from. One of the things I find is Christians and non-Christians alike ask the question, what is this? How did you get it? Why are there so many translations? How do you have 66 books? Why? I mean, the Catholics have more. Why don't, aren't they in here? What, and we're going to just wrestle with, what is this? And, and how, can we trust it? But in the process of preparing for that, this is the principle that came across to me. William Tyndale lived in England almost 500 years ago, a little over 500 years ago. And it was his passion, and, his, and, and when he was living, this book that I hold in my hands would have, by me possessing this, I could burn at the stake. In his day, and, and all the way before that, The church basically said, if you don't know Hebrew, if you don't know Greek and Aramaic, the original languages of most of the Bible, or if you don't know Latin, which the church translated it into Latin, then you don't know this on your own. You need to come to a priest to interpret it for you. William Tyndale said, listen... The common language, the common English language, I think every single person should be able to read this. And his passion was that the little boy who grabs hold of the plow to plow in the field should be able to pick this up and read and know for himself more than what the priests in the church do. So he made it his mission to get this English Bible into our hands today 500 years later. And we don't even realize today we've got 40, 50, 60 translations. If you don't like the way that one reads, you go find another one. And we don't understand the privilege this is. I found a story, a father like me, he had three children, I have four, so this really hit home, had a copy of the Lord's Prayer in English. Not even the whole scripture, just a copy of the Lord's Prayer in English. And he was having his children read it. And the church came along and burnt him at the stake because he had a copy of the Lord's Prayer in English in the common language of the day. And we say, 500 years ago. That is not that long when you consider all of human history. And today we've got, I counted, I have nine, I think it was nine copies of this sitting on my shelf in my office. I have more copies at home. I've got 40 or so copies on this thing that I can pull out of my pocket and check and look at. It's a high privilege to engage this. So as a church, we said because of that privilege, we want to really build on that. We want to make that kind of the foundation of our discipleship process. So we kind of looked at a psychological principle called the keystone principle. A keystone principles is just saying if we could pick one simple behavior that we give attention to that will then ultimately trigger a lot of other things just naturally, what would it be? So we said let's put a reading plan together and encourage people as a church to read the Bible. So that's what this is, and, or the reading plan. I want to encourage you, if you don't have one, or you don't have a reading plan, that, if you have a reading plan that's working, don't jump over with us. It's working, keep it working. This isn't the only reading plan out there. But jump in and read and get to know God, and you'll be amazed at what happens as a result of that and the growth that takes place. Now, transition to practical teaching, and then we'll close this thing up. New Testament, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. If you grab that Bible, it's a privilege for you to have in your hands or on your phone. Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verses 24 and 29. Matthew chapter 7. Now this is coming. This verse is is the conclusion of Jesus' most famous sermon that he ever preached, the longest we have recorded as well. It's also probably one of the most well-known sermons in human history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is his, these verses are him landing the plane. You hear me say that? It's his conclusion. I'm coming to the end of it, and here's the final thing I'm going to say. It says this, and here's another children's song. We aren't going to sing this one. The wise man built his house upon the rock, Right? Some of you know the rest of that? We aren't going to sing that one, but here's the verses about it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, referring to a sermon that he just preached, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Now look at why they were amazed. Verse 29, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers that they're used to, the teachers of the law. Now, The thing that's interesting to me, I want to engage you in this. If you've grown up in church and you've heard this song sung or you've read this and you hear then the Sunday school teacher tell you to go build your house on the rock, what is the rock that they tell you to build it on? Jesus. That's what I was told all the time, but is that what this verse says? What is the rock? It's not Jesus. What is it? What does the passage actually say? Build it on my teaching, on the practical things that I've talked about. The second thing I'd challenge you with, and really push in on this, if you go back through Jesus' sermon, his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, and if you ask the deep and wide question of this sermon, and if you, if you ask, just go out and ask people in church And say, what is deep teaching to you? Generally, you're going to hear deep theology. You're going to hear something about, um, let's go verse by verse, and let's really dig. But what is deep to you? But here's what's interesting to me. When I go through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't see the qualification of what many people call deep. What I see is practical stuff. Just go back through it. If you look at me, the sermon, I'm just going to page through it. If you have a Bible with headings, if you see the very first thing you have is in verse 13, you have this heading, salt and light. So Jesus' very first practical teach is, hey, I'm going to teach you how to live different. The next thing is the fulfillment of the law. You see that heading? So he says, I'm going to teach you that I have ultimately, it's all about me. I've come to fulfill the law. The next thing you have is incredibly practical. It's all about murder and hatred. Then the next thing you have is all about adultery and committing adultery. And Jesus pushes, and let's talk about lust. I mean, let me ask the question, is that a big deal today? Yeah. How about divorce? If you're here first service, you see a a man standing out on our our road who's got a sign, who's got a problem with us because we apparently love divorce. But it's a big topic today. 50% of marriages in our culture or more are ending in divorce. And Jesus walks into that practical reality. Let's talk about it. And then he gets into these oaths, and it, that's what we do with our words. Is my yes a yes and my no a no? I mean, how about how do I handle my tongue? And then we get into if you see an eye for an eye. So in other words, hey, let's, how do we handle people? Do you turn the other cheek? And then you get into loving your enemies. Love your enemy. As a matter of fact, love them so much that you give away your stuff to them. And then he talks about giving to the needy. How do you handle living with the poor? Then he talks about how do you pray? And let's talk about praying. Then let's talk about the practical discipline of fasting. And then let's talk about money. See how practical this is? This is not what most of us consider, quote-unquote, deep. Jesus doesn't go to those things that we naturally think of as deep teaching, that I naturally think of. And then he talks about anxiety. Don't worry. Don't have anxiety. I mean, he goes through that. He talks about how you can just rest and be secure today. Then he talks about judging others. Oh, there's a practical one for today. Then he gets into this, just seek me and knock and chase after me. And then he ultimately ends and says, hey, hey, I know not everyone's going to be a true follower of me. Look for the fruit. Now, that's practical as practical gets. There isn't deep teaching as most of us think of as deep. But yet I find that so many people in the church want this deep teaching. But here's the reality. I think what Jesus understood is what Andy Stanley, sorry, my clicker is not clicking. There it goes. Andy Stanley, a pastor in Italy, yikes. Hold on, let me go one more. What Andy Stanley understood, understands, I think Jesus got this. People are far more interested in what works than what's true. Think about that. Think about that in your own life. Isn't that true of you? Don't think about why you came to church or why you sat through your Sunday school class, but just think about your day-to-day life. What is your mind often thinking about? Is your mind saying what's true or is your mind saying what works, what's going to make me happy, what's going to fix the problem? Virtually nobody is on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. Now, we can either push. I think that's, that's a wise, well-said statement. And here's what I've learned with practical teaching as a church Whether you in this room are a Christian or a non-Christian, if we have practical teaching, you will benefit. Here's why. This is called God's law, not God's rules. And you've heard me say that. I say this a lot. Here's the difference between a rule and a law. Sir Isaac Newton. Some of you know Sir Isaac Newton. The apple fell on his head. When the apple fell on his head, he said, Oh, my goodness, there's this thing called gravity. Well, let's say I come from a camp that's, that's... anti-Newton. I say, I just think gravity is foolish. I don't think it exists. I'm going to come up with another theory about why the apple fell. How's my life going to go? I mean, my kids are all into superheroes, so I personally like Batman myself. I'm the Dark Knight, you know, and so if you ever see Batman and I'm not around, you know why. I mean, it's all about Batman. So my kids all have their own superheroes, so if I come and decide, you know what, I'm going to bring my stuff one morning. I'm going to fly all around this room with all those cool things that he does. What's going to happen to me? I mean, look at me. I have a hard time walking right now, let alone getting off this stage. And if I start flying around this room, I am going to hurt. Why am I going to hurt? Because I violated the law of gravity. Whether I live it or whether I, violate, whether I believe in it or not, I violate it, I'm going to hurt. That's how God's law is. So if we teach, and if Jesus says, you teach practically, people can practice that. And then what ends up happening, they begin to realize, wow, God didn't leave us blind. He knows what life is about, and it's beginning to work for me. And as it begins to work for me, just hang with me in this, begins to work for me, if I'm not a Christian, I might actually then consider the claims of Jesus, and let's go further with who this Jesus character is. Or, Or I might say, oh my goodness, I can see that it should work, and I want it to work, but I can't do it. I continue to want to do this, but I continue to do that, so I need Jesus. Either way, it's going to bring us back to the reality of Jesus. So practical teaching. Now, Jesus, in another place in Scripture, this one is huge, John chapter 8. This is all throughout the Scriptures. To the Jews who had, say it with me, believed. believed. Okay, so he's talking to people who have believed. So, So starting out as a disciple of Jesus always begins with faith. To the Jews who had believed, Jesus said, say it with me, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What I find so interesting about this verse is many churches and Christian leaders quote the end of this verse. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. Praise Jesus. But they miss that it's an if-then clause. Before you know the truth and before it sets you free, something has to happen first. If... You hold to my teachings. Some of your translations say abide in my teachings, live in them, make them a part of you, dwell with them. You are then really my disciple. So if you believe and obey, then you're a disciple. Then, or some of your translations have the word and, the English word and, but either way, it's a transitional word that's saying do this, then this happens, or and this will happen. And, or then, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So, some of us don't know the truth and aren't set free because we're not practicing it. We know what to do. And instead, I'd rather speak harshly to my spouse, or I choose to look at that image, or I choose to get drunk, or I choose to cheat on my spouse, or I choose to tell a lie, or I choose to steal or I choose to worry about tomorrow and have a lot of anxiety, or I choose to chase after money. And I don't practice the truth. Therefore, I don't experience the truth. And because I don't experience the truth, I don't really know the truth, and it's not going to set me free. I only know what I experience. I may intellectually know it, but do I really know it? James chapter 1, what I think reinforces, and encourage you to write that down and read it this week. James chapter 1 says, when you come to this book, when you see it, do it. Do what it says. Don't look at it and think, oh, that's really cool. That really convicts me. And then shut it and walk away. It says, and when you do, it calls this book the perfect law that gives freedom. James chapter 1, verse 25. The perfect law that gives freedom. Practice it. And then you experience it. And as you practice and experience, you're going to know and be set free. Powerful reality. What's interesting to me is I think about Jesus. I thought long and hard about this this week. When Jesus speaks in a strong rebuking way towards his disciples... I can't think, I could think of one that's kind of in the camp, but I, other than that one, I could not think of a time that Jesus looks at the people trying to follow him when he says, you fools, you don't know. Or is the, the bad word my kids say, they think, it's just, they think of this is the S word in my family, stupid. One day my kids come home and say, oh my word, dad, someone said the S word. I was like, what did they say? Stupid. So again, Jesus says, not say you're stupid, you don't know. He says no. What does he say to him? Oh, you of little faith. Which is evidence in the fact that you're not living it out. Oh, you of little faith. He never says, oh, you idiots. He doesn't say, go study more. He does say that, I find it He does say that at times to the Pharisees, but never his disciples. He says, oh, you of little faith. Abide with me. Practice it, and you're going to know it and be set free. Now, practically, what does this mean? And I'm going to land a plane and we're going to go home. Practically, let me address this. One of the things on this stage, Chris and I and whoever else is up here, we want to get better and better and better and better at being practical. I don't think I'm practical enough. My personality and my gift set, I struggle with being practical. Over the years of getting feedback from my messages, it's the number one thing I've consistently heard. Adam, you're up here in the clouds. Adam, you're deep into all this thinking. Where, make it practical. I want to be more practical. As far as our adult education classes, the number one question for some, I don't understand this, that I have been asked is, I've been here four and a half years, is are you getting rid of Sunday school? I don't know why I get asked that. I'm still trying to figure that out. I want to just state publicly, we are not getting rid of classroom cognitive learning, period. You know why? Because I was one of the elders that when I said how I grew, the classroom is one of the number one things on my list. So why would I get rid of it? Now, what I will say as a church, we're going to encourage the personal study And we're going to encourage practical teaching from the stage and in classroom settings where you can discuss and talk. But it may not look like it's always looked. Right now, 2.5 Sundays a month is all that most of you attend. You say, what? Yes. Now, I looked at that number pre-summer when I looked at that number. I think after the summer, that number may drop even more because we go away and we vacation everything else. 2.5 2.5 Sundays. So I look at that and I say, well, why do we do classes that last 12 weeks? You're only going to be at six to seven of them. What are we doing It's working with our busy, crazy culture? We can guilt you into attending more, but that's not that never works. And I understand you guys have lives that take you, uh, you know, I've got to be at a football game. I'm trying to end this thing early so I can be at that thing on time. So again, it's going to look different. The classes may not be 12 weeks; it may be one week, two weeks, maybe multiple courses. It may be on a different day. It may be things that work with where we're at today. But we're going to keep cognitive, practical teaching clearly a part of Bethany. Here's where we'll end. Colossians 2:6. We looked at this uh, when we went over the summer, we went through our things. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. We will not be... I grew up in a church that proclaimed the gospel. I grew up in a church that believed the gospel. I do not ultimately want to be a church that proclaims and believes the gospel. Some of you just... Some of you are sleeping. What I just said should cause you some concern. I do not want to be a church that proclaims and believes the gospel. I want to be a church that's gospel-centric. In other words... We don't just preach a great message and then tack the message of Jesus on at the end. We want the message of Jesus and grace to flow through the whole thing. In other words, we don't just want to have parenting classes and teach people how to parent. We want to have parenting classes that look at parenting through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace and mercy of Jesus coming to this earth to die for me, to represent God to me, to bring me ultimately by grace alone, through faith alone, to God himself. We want how we work, we want how we live, we want how we play, we want how we do marriage, we want how we do parenting, all to be viewed through the lens of the gospel. We want to draw one big well, dig a well here every Sunday, and that well is drinking deep of Jesus. Now, we'll talk about all the other practical stuff, but we want everything to be centric on the gospel, because I mature and I grow the same way I came to Christ the exact same journey is the way I continue, by faith alone in Jesus. And the prayer of our elders, because we believe you want to grow. We believe you want to be mature. We be, here's the prayer, and this is the verse we're encouraging you to memorize. We have a memory plan with our reading plan. But this is the verse. I'm going to read this and pray. He is the one we proclaim, referring to Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully matured, leaving no one out. We want to present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, now this is Paul now, the pastor speaking, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me with. That's our prayer. And we believe that's your desire. So we're asking you this morning just to consider what it looks like to make a personal commitment to reading the Bible. Get serious about that. Are you taking in practical teaching? If you're here, I hope it's practical. I hope it's working for you. But we've, the Internet's incredible today. I mean, there's so much stuff out there. But we want to see that next week we'll talk about relationships and we'll talk about serving. We pray with me then as we close up. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that you have lived through Jesus. God, I think about my journey over the years. I think about when I prayed that prayer, and many people in this room have prayed a prayer at a young age. I think about the days of walking away. I think about the days of chasing you. I think about the days of great pain, great joy, great doubt, great question. Question. God, ultimately, I look at the maturity that's taken place in my life, and God, so many people in here give testament to that same thing in their lives. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for saying, I'm going to continue the work that I started. Thank you that we don't need to depend on our great ideas and our great ways. We just need to lean into you and walk with how you've designed life to work. God, help us as a church to be so clear about our desire to make disciples. God, we as a church want to make disciples, meaning people that are far from you coming to know you and growing up, people that know you continuing to get to know you and grow up, but we want to make disciples. Help us to engage with reading and studying and knowing, or if we don't like to read, God, I pray for the person here who says, I don't like to read. God, may they find a way to take in your word through listening on all the tools that are out there or watching. We can even watch it today. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you've come to this earth. Thank you that you've given us your word and not left us as orphans. You've told us how life works. You've told us who you are, and you've revealed Jesus to us. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.